We've been talking about contentment. What is contentment to you? I want you to take a snapshot of your mind right now, and what would, what would it take to make you content? Maybe you're sitting on a beach in Maui. There you are with a coconut with the top cut off, and you have a straw in it, and you're sucking out coconut water. Your feet are up, and nice, soft, tropical breeze. Ah, content. Or maybe uh, you're sitting by a fireplace in a lodge up in the mountains, cup of hot cocoa in your hand, and the kids are playing or the grandkids are playing close by. Uh, that's contentment. Or maybe it's two hours without restriction at a coffee shop with your best friends just sitting around talking and talking and drinking lattes and just laughing. What would contentment be to you? Oh, it's, I know what contentment is. It's when I have that carefree feeling. Others say, just not being overworked, and that'll make me content. Others would feel like if they don't have any irritations in life, and others say, well, if I could just get some rest, (laughs) that would certainly make me content. Now, all of those things are certainly good, and nothing wrong with any of those. But the fact is, any of those are not real life, are they? Because while life is good, life also has many and often fear. Circumstances stress us. Disappointments come from our relationships. And such is the case of the Apostle Paul. And yet, in it all, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he said, here's what I've learned. In whatsoever state I am, Did you get that? Whatsoever state. I find myself in different states at times. Now, he's not talking about the United States. He's talking about different conditions, different circumstances. Circumstances change for me, he said. I've I've had food and I've been very little food. I've been at times when I'm very free to do what I want. Other times, I'm very captured. But he said, whatever state I've learned... It is a learning process. That sounds like growth. It wasn't an instantaneous gift from God. It was a a synergism between Him and the Holy Spirit learning to be content. Now, I think to get a full and biblical picture of contentment, as I uh, started this uh, series uh, several weeks ago and started studying it, I realized there was a false contentment out there. And I think by finding what is false contentment, maybe we can get an understanding of what true contentment is. And so that's the message this morning. Well, the fact is today so many people uh, are just discontent. It's everywhere. A man was up in a hot air balloon, realized he was lost. He reduced his altitude, spotted a woman on the ground below, and descended and shouted, excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I'd meet him an hour ago. I don't know where I am. The woman replied, you're in a hot air balloon. You're hovering approximately 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 and 60 degrees west longitude. He looked at her and said, you must be an engineer. I am, said the reporter woman, she said, how'd you know? Well, he said, everything you told me is technically correct. 
but I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I'm still lost. Frankly, you've not been much at help at all. If anything, you've just delayed my trip. Discontent. The woman said, uh, you must be in management. He said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. How'd you know? Well, you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You have risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. You made a promise which you have no idea how to keep. You expect people beneath you to solve your problems. The fact is you're in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. <laughs> Nobody's content anymore. Well, let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to find true contentment. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get into this. Five things, I would say, from the Apostle Paul's life as a backdrop that true contentment is not. It is certainly, first of all, not a carefree existence. Ah, oh, that idyllic moment we all long for, swinging in a hammock on a summer day, sipping sweet tea, watching the family play croquet on the front lawn. The fact is, um, that's really not too realistic always when the whole world is falling apart. I mean, yes, it would be nice to have those moments, but to imagine we're going to have that all the time is just not thinking correctly. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8, here's the Apostle Paul. He said, brethren, we would not have you to be ignorant. We don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want us to be ignorant either. I don't want you to be ignorant of our trouble. It would be easy sometimes as leaders to kind of paint a picture that you don't have to have troubles. But the apostles, Paul said, I'm not going to hide that from you. He said, which came to us in Asia while we were pressed out of measure, above our strength. People say, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. Uh, <clears throat> who told you that? Anyway, that's not Bible. Above my strength, pressed out of measure, insomuch that we despaired even of life. fact is, God often brings us to a point beyond what we can handle. But with God, we can handle it. And that's the whole point. As we just sang a moment ago, yes, it's beyond my strength. But God says, with my strength, it's certainly not beyond what you can do. That's what it says in verse 9. So that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth even the dead. If the Scripture is clear about anything, it is clear about this, that God brings His people into adversity beyond their natural abilities so that they will let God have an opportunity. Whereas the wise Christian once said, my extremity is God's opportunity. By the way, I will say we do have the notes on the podcast, as Pastor Luke mentioned, and you can fill those out, email them to you, or excuse me, on the, on the, uh, on the app. We have upgraded our podcast, I'll just make a mention of that. So that uh, now on Monday morning, we upload it. So if you ever want to share a, a message with somebody, just say, hey, I want to share this with you. You can actually just, uh, you know, email it to them or however they do that. You can send it to them. So uh, enjoy them with that. But why? Why, the Apostle Paul said, why do we go through these troubles? We go through them so that we can hope in His sufficiency. My extremity is God's opportunity. Write that down and email it to yourself. My extremity is God's opportunity. This is opportunity time, sweetheart. 
This is opportunity time. The Apostle Paul said, why did God bring me into this situation? Why did God create a, a holy discontentment in me? So that he could prove himself to be strong. And I will tell you this, the older I get, the more I realize I can trust God. Now, there are certain parts of my Christian life, I'm not sure that I'm a better Christian than I was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But there's one area I can certainly tell you that I have learned, and that is I can tell you, you can trust God. I don't know the end of so many things anymore, but all I know is if I'll do right today, then I can trust God with tomorrow. It's basically what I live by. Just do right every day, make the little decisions to be right ones. The big ones kind of take care of themselves. I can trust God. God will make a way. Contentment is certainly not a carefree existence. Number two, contentment is not the absence of heartaches. As you read the New Testament, God's choicest servants were often brokenhearted. David's own son betrayed him. Pastor Hosea's wife, she was sleeping around. Can you imagine? A pastor's wife out there just living like a common harlot. Paul had a share of relational issues himself. His friend Barnabas frustrated him. Demas abandoned him. The church at Corinth disappointed him. He couldn't believe that they would just treat him so badly. In fact, hear what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. While I was writing my letter to you, tears were just streaming down my face. He was brokenhearted that you might that you should be grieved, that, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. He said, I'm not trying to spoil your day. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But the fact is, I am brokenhearted from the stuff I see in the church. He said, You've, and the more I reach out to you, the more you seem to pull away. He said, I don't get it. I've, I, do you realize what I've sacrificed to make a difference in your lives? And he was hurt deeply. The fact is, folks, if you love deeply, you're going to hurt deeply at times. It just comes with the territory. But that doesn't mean that we're discontent. Oh, well, you should never be brokenhearted because, you know, that shows that you're not content in the Lord. That is not true at all. God, it just means that God, we need to say to God, Lord, I know you can share the load. I know that you can help me here. And that's what he's saying here. He said, you know, if you just learn the fact that God is going to help share this load. He's going to carry it with you. When we have a bird ache, a heartache and we have a burden, he's willing to carry the load. He's willing to help. You know, we've built these buildings now, and on this first building especially, I had a very, uh, very real part doing the physical labor so much of the time, four days a week for a while there. When we uh, were putting the beams up and People often ask us, do you do the work yourself? Yes, almost all of it. And uh, we actually had some people help us put the big beams up. But these little beams, they're called purlins. And they're about 25, 30 feet long or so. And they weigh several hundred pounds. Well, you have to move them from side to side and move them from here to there, get them ready for, you know, roping up or whatever you have to do. But you have to carry those things. And so, uh, you know, it was always a help. I, I pretty much couldn't do it by myself. There are a few people that could carry those things by themselves, but wasn't, I wasn't one of them. 
So I'd always enlist somebody to help me carry that beam. But, you know, if I'm going to be working here, might as well have a little bit of fun, too. So I'd especially get some of the younger guys and uh, didn't know any better. And so I'd say, okay, grab that beam. They'd say, okay, where do you want me to grab it? I'd say, here, grab it in the middle. Grab it right there in the middle. They'd say, okay. They'd go up there and grab it in the middle. I'd say, I'll carry the back. And they'd say, okay. So uh, they'd carry it in the middle, and I'd just balance it in the back. <laughs> They're carrying the whole load. <laughs> But I'd act like, yeah, boy, okay, hold it on there. They're like, man, these are heavy. I said, yeah, they are, but I can do it easy, you know. And look at me, one hand. And so, you know what, that is exactly God. Yes, God will help us carry the load. But here's what I've noticed about God. If we'll let him, he'll pick it up in the middle. And my part of the load, still carrying it. But thank God, he carries it with me. And that's what Apostle Paul is saying here. He is saying, it's not an absence of heartaches. It's just that my heartaches are carried along by God. Thank God. It's not a carefree existence. It's not an absence of heartaches. Number three, he said, I think my life, I'm a content man. He said, I've learned contentment. But he said, it's not without its pain. Or as I have here in my outline, groans. Physical pain. Hey, man, life just has pain. And pain is no fun. I mean, it's just no fun. There are times when you just can't get rid of it. You just, no matter how you move or no matter what you do, it just physical pain is terrible. Emotional pain perhaps is even worse because there's literally nothing you can do to change the situation. It's just emotional pain. There's spiritual pain. I mean, how can we not look at a lost loved one, a child or a grandchild or a brother or sister or a parent or a friend? How can we not look at them or just a community and not have pain? I mean, there's no way to live without groans. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. Even though I'm content, he said, I groan. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Contentment, true contentment does not mean free from desires, free from longings, free from heart-wrenching circumstances. Godly groaning is not complaining. It's not even negativity. It's just groaning to the right person. And that's what David said in Psalm 142 and verse 4. He said, I poured out my complaint before him. I poured out my complaint before him. I can tell you that verse right there helped me so much. Because honestly, at times I felt like I was a whiner, like I was complaining too much, like I was just, you know, always coming to God and telling my issues, you know. And one day I read that verse and I said, hallelujah, praise God. I can complain, but I can complain to the Lord. It doesn't say I poured out my complaint to my wife, although there might be a time you could do that to a degree. It doesn't say I, can, I poured out my complaint to my husband or I poured out my complaint to my children or I poured out my complaint to my friends. You know, all of us want to, you know, in the psychological world, it's called catharsis. You know, I just, need to, I just need to get this off of my chest and we need to talk it through. And, and to a degree, that's, there is a certainly wisdom in that. I'm certainly a, a great fan of communication. But the fact is, the number one person we should pour out our complaint to is the Lord. David in this verse was running from his life. He's stuck in an old cave. It was dark. It was damp. It was 
murky. It was terrible. He was lonely. He was missing his family. He didn't have any hot food. It was terrible. He was running for his life. He found himself in a cave with a bunch of bats hanging from the ceiling and stuff crawling on the ground. He was freezing and he just, it was terrible. His own men would speak of mutiny and his missing his wife and his children. He was like, man, what's going on here? And he said he poured out his complaint to the Lord. The fact was, all those things are terrible. I, mean, I don't know anybody can be in those conditions and like them. And he said here, I poured out my complaint to the Lord. And folks, real contentment doesn't mean you can't complain. It just means you complain to the Lord. Let's say you have a problem with a product Maybe the shipping, or maybe it didn't come like you thought, or it's very bad, you know, uh, condition, or whatever the case is. You have a problem with a product that you have. And so you decide to go back to the department store. They still have those nowadays. And uh, so you go to the department store, and you walk in there, and so uh, the first person you see, you see the custodian walking along, pushing his little cart there, and you stop the custodian, and you say, hey, I want to complain about something. He's looking at you like, he's probably going to talk about the bathrooms. I didn't get my box on time. He's like, what? What are you talking about? He said, no, I didn't. You didn't. You said two-day shipping. I got it like a four or five days, and I missed the time I needed this thing. I, I, I want to complain. The janitor's like, what are you talking to me about? I mean, go over there to the complaint counter. Go to the customer service department. And uh, so on the way there, you see a salesman selling perfume, and you say, wait a second, I want to I wanna complain. They're thinking, oh, boy, they must have got a bottle of perfume and didn't work. He said, I want to complain about the shipping. What? About the, well, you need to go over there. And that's our life. We complain when we get up in the morning to our children, but they can't do anything about it. We complain to our wife. We complain to the people at work. We com I mean, we complain to the person at the grocery store. And all the time, they can do nothing about it. And we complain to the wrong people. The Bible says, if you want to complain, okay, if you've got a legitimate concern, just complain to the Lord. Just pour out your complaint before the Lord. Folks, this one verse will just transform your spirit into contentment. I poured out my complaint to the Lord. What God is saying here is this. This is like having an open door to walk into the department store, walk past the janitor, walk past the salesperson, walk into the customer service department, walk right through the customer service department, and go right into the CEO of the company and say, I've got a complaint. And that CEO give you time and then make some changes. Now, that's what I call good. And that's what, that's what David is saying here. He's saying, you know what? Go ahead and complain. Just complain to the Lord. Don't complain to everybody along the line. Contentment is not a life without groans. Number four, true contentment is not a life without risk. Fact is, God has called His people to take risks for the kingdom of God. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 7, it says, And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, Wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over to Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? <laughs> Joshua was, he'd kind of lost it right here. He was acting like God was trying to destroy the nation. But notice his next words because 
he was really off base here. Good man that he was, great man that he was. Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Nobody can blame Joshua. He was a leader. He had just lost so many of his good people, died, killed in a war at Ai. He didn't really realize that there was sin in the camp. There was a situation. But in his thinking, they should have been content to never come into Canaan land. He said, we should, have, we should have joined the other tribes, the two tribes, I forget their names right now, you probably remember them, but who, who didn't go into Canaan land. They asked Joshua, they asked Moses, they said, look, we want our lot, we don't want to go into Canaan land. We don't want to go there. We don't care about Canaan land. We're tired of fighting and we're tired of running. We're trying to live out of our suitcases. We want to stay right here. But they were tribes that had a lack of faith, and God reprimanded them for that. And now here Joshua is actually going back on what God had told him to do. He's saying, you know what? Maybe we should have stayed with them. Maybe we should have never even gone into Canaan land. Maybe we should have never risked coming. But the fact is, there, what Joshua thought was discontentment actually was just godly risk-taking. Now, godly risk-taking is actually a very clear calling of God. God had called His people to come and take Canaan land. It was His will. But He said, I'm not going to just drive them out for you. He even told them that. He said, I'm going to drive them out little by little so that the land doesn't overtake you, so that it's not too easy and you take it all for granted. Anything with God in the middle of it involves godly risk. Now, what is the difference between godly risk and risk? Well, risk is violating a scriptural principle. Risk is disregarding common sense. Godly risk is taking into consideration all what God says in His Word, then taking a calculated risk. It doesn't mean still can't do something strange, as God told Joshua to do when they marched around the walls of Jericho and other things. But common sense, they still had spears in their hand. The fact is, godly risk involves a chance of failure. A lack of faith does not equal contentment. Christ calls us to take risks for kingdom purposes. And yet today we live in a country where American consumerism says exactly the opposite. If you want to be content, you need to have comfort. If you want to be content, you need security. But God says, no, take a risk for me. But the world says, no, I don't want to step out of anything normal. God says, take a risk. Get into church and start living counterculturally and watch me do a great work in your life. In fact, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. He said, you need to take a, you need to get out there and make a difference with the gospel. And he said, don't be afraid. <laughs> and honestly, as I read in this verse this week, I had to laugh. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I say unto you, friends, don't be afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. He said, now, now folks, you realize what Jesus is saying? He's saying, go out there for the gospel's sake. The worst they can do is kill you. What? They can't do anything else than kill you. I'm like, isn't that enough? <laughs> wow. <laughs> but God has such a 
different viewpoint of death than we do. We, we feel like, you know, that's the, that's, the, that's the end. That's the absolute ultimate end. The fact is, the greatest day of our life, the most dramatic day of our life, is when we went from spiritual death to spiritual life, that moment we were born again, and the Spirit of God came to live inside of me at that very moment. That's the greatest change that we'll ever experience. Death, honestly, is just changing positions. That's all. I mean, because already I'm saved. In fact, according to Romans chapter 8, God's already glorified me. I'm already walking with Him in glory. One author said, better to love God and die unknown than to love the world and be a hero. Better to be content with poverty than to die a slave to wealth. Better to have taken some risks and lost than to have done nothing and succeeded at it. The great Christian author A. David Tozer said this, revivals come. Now listen to this. False contentment thinks, you know, we shouldn't take any risks. A.W. Tozer wrote, revivals come only to those who want them badly enough. The problem is not to persuade God to fill us, but to want God sufficiently to do so. The average Christian is so cold and so content that there is no vacuum of desire into which the blessed spirit can rush in. Folks, we confuse contentment with really spiritual coldness. Think of those who took spiritual and godly risk. Consider Esther. A discontented and godly risk taker, Esther broke the royal law when she went into the king uninvited to save her people. And you remember in Esther chapter 4 verse 16, she said, if I perish, I perish. That's risk taking. Shadrach. Meshach, Abednego, those godly Hebrew young men refused to bow and be content from a worldly standpoint. In Daniel chapter 3 and verse 17, they said, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver. But if not, king, be it known to you, we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. That was godly risk-taking for the kingdom's sake. The early church members they all knew something that we seem to have forgotten. Every person who joined the New Testament church in their first century knew that sooner or later they would probably give their life. They knew that when they signed the membership covenant, they were saying, I do now say I will die for the cause of Jesus Christ. To become a Christian to become a member of a local church was to risk your life. And around the world, it's, it's often like that. There are more people being killed in Africa, like that person in Pakistan this week who was put in jail for seven, or had been in jail, just was released, but had been there for six to eight years because of blasphemy, because they just simply said, I don't believe in the Quran, I believe in Jesus Christ. They're a Pakistani Christian. And Pauline and I were in Thailand. We met a beautiful Pakistani family there in that church in Bangkok, and beautiful family. They all had Christian names. And one of the boys' names was Timothy, and the girl's name was Hannah, I think. Just beautiful, beautiful family talking to us about the Lord. But you know, we're all over the world today, people in Africa and people in the Middle East who become a Christian know that this is a risk venture. This is a godly risk-taking. Contentment is not 
refusing to take a godly risk. We've all heard of couch potatoes. Couch potatoes are people who are content to do nothing but sit in front of a TV and just sit there. Day after day, hour after hour, just sitting there. Did you know there's a new thing in churches today? And that is the pew potatoes. That is, we have pew potatoes. They sit at church from week to week, sit for a few minutes, give $5, and never are transformed into godly risk-taking. I met a guy this week. I could not believe what he told me. I, after he told me, I just laughed and said, you're, you're something else. We were out golfing, and he said, here, found I was a pastor, and he said, man, I went to a church in Manteca. He said, I walked in there, and that music was so crazy and so so nuts. He said, I'd turn my hearing aid down. I said, okay, well, some church could be kind of loud. And uh, he said, I, I got so irritated. I walked outside. And I asked that usher, I said, I want my $5 back. <laughs> I just looked at him and said, oh, really? Wow. First of all, you put in $5? That was your big gift and, and you wanted it back? Oh, my goodness. But that's so many people today. They sit then they sour, and they never, ever take a godly risk for the Lord. Number five, contentment is not freedom from striving against sin. The apostle Paul knew that contentment was not effortless. It involves striving. 2 Timothy 2.5, and if a man strive for the mastery, what level Christian are you? Are you a novice? Are you a journeyman? Or are you a master Christian? I want to be a master Christian. You have to strive lawfully, using the law, obeying the law. God calls us to live a Christian life with the full use of our brains and our common sense. God has called us to use our humanity to serve Him, and it takes work. Now, the extreme grace crowd, the radical grace crowd, the cheap grace crowd, whatever you want to call them, they push a cheap counterfeit to true Christianity. Here's what they say. They say, all you have to do is abide in Christ. He produces the spiritual fruit. You don't have to do anything. He does it all. Or some Christian singer will be up here and they'll say, you know what? Well, one day I learned that I'm a human being, not a human doing. Trying to tell us that, you know, pastors are always telling us to do this and do that. Folks, the fact is, genuine Christ-likeness requires effort. When Jesus saves us, He doesn't make us less human. He makes us a more quality human. He attends for us to use our minds and use our hands and to use everything that we have. True contentment is not effortless. Only true, only the Holy Spirit can produce Christ-like qualities. But when He produces those fruit, we are to cultivate it and to bring it to its best. In theology, when a Christian becomes, when a person becomes a Christian, it is God working in them. It is only God. I can't, I don't really have any part of my salvation other than to receive it. There's a doctrinal term for that, maybe expose you to it, you know. Not a big thing, but it's called monergism, M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-M, monergism. That is a theological term meaning one at work. Of course, it means that, mono and ergo, which means one working. In salvation, it is monergism, 
one working. But in sanctification, it's synergism. The crowd that mistakes this think that it, salvation and sanctification is monergism. No, sanctification is clearly synergism. It is working together with God. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus was the only one doing the work. He walked up there and Lazarus was dead as he could be. And Jesus walked up there and he said, Lazarus, come out of that tomb. And he came out. That is monergism. But what happened when he came out of the tomb? He had to take his grave cloths off and others helped him. And then he had to come to Jesus. That's synergism. He had to have a part in taking the grave cloths off. And the fact is, all of us have been come out of the grave and we have grave cloths on. And week by week, we're taking these old junk off from the world. And that's something we work together with God. The Apostle Paul calls the Christian life a race. And another place he calls it a battle. And one place he even called it childbirth. And I will tell you, ladies will tell you, but even uh, us uh, husbands and fathers know that's not an easy thing. That's work. And that's what God wants us to realize. Fighting against sin diligently is not in opposition to contentment. And so it's not uh, contentment to say, oh, God does everything. No, I need to have a certain striving and a certain discontentment with my Christian life. That is part of what it means to have spiritual disciplines. Now we've seen what contentment is not. Let's see, according to the Apostle Paul, what it is. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. And there are at least four features here that I think are just powerful. Again, the Apostle Paul's life just, he said, I've learned contentment. It's none of these things. What is it? Number one, it is knowing, true contentment is knowing your heavenly situation is secure. Verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. This is good news because life has a lot of twists and turns. There are times when I feel saved and there are times when I may not feel so saved. There are times when I rejoice in my salvation. There are other times when, honestly, I'm not even sure if I'm saved at all. Because all of us are so human, we're so emotional, we have so many things come inside of our life. But the Bible says that even though we're not faithful, God is faithful. There may be a day when I lose my ability to be able to cognitively uh, focus on what's going around me. There may be a day when I might even not know if God even exists. I'm, my mind is so gone. And yet, even though I don't abide faithful, I'm glad that God abides faithful. And that's what he's saying here. We are in Christ, in Christ. No condemnation. I am in Christ. Very likely that the reference here is the Apostle Paul because he knew Scripture so well and he, he preached the law. He said, I, I love the law after my, with my inner man. He loved it so much because it was so full of life and such life-giving. He's probably referring to the city of refuge where if anybody had sinned, especially uh, manslaughter or accidental murder, they would be able to run to these six or seven cities, I think maybe it's seven cities, they would run there to them. And as long as they were in the city, there was no condemnation. Jesus is our city of refuge, and there's no condemnation in Him. And that's what He's saying here. He is saying, I'll tell you one thing, I just, 
it makes, it's a tremendous moment of contentment when I know at least one thing I'm sure of, my heaven's secure. Number two, it's focusing our mind on spiritual matters. We're staying in Romans chapter 8. Here, the Apostle Paul, whose life was so full of so much stuff, and yet he said, I have contentment. For me to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The more Bible thoughts I have, the more peaceful I get. More Bible. You say, I don't, I don't, I've lost my peace. More Bible. I'm, I'm feeling upset. More Bible. I'm, I'm really, I'm really struggling. More Bible. You say, well, I read, uh, I read my devotional book. <laughs> Those are good. And I, for that. But you need to read your Bible. Well, I read four verses. You need to read your Bible. Well, I read for five minutes. You need to read your Bible, friend. Turn that stinking TV off. Turn the Netflix off. Turn the stupid TV, the music down and read your Bible. More Bible, more Bible, more Bible, more Bible, more peace. That's what Paul said. He said, I found contentment when I, when I, when I got spiritual. When I got spiritual, I found life and peace. Well, you say, what should I do? Read your Bible. Now, I know it sounds simplistic, but folks, I'm talking about one chapter. No, I'm talking about two chapters. I'm talking about five chapters. Folks, there have been times when I sat down and read the Bible for hours, just hours. I just couldn't find any peace anywhere else. I'm honest, I just couldn't find, because everything else was confusing, especially after Lynette died. I can tell you, I mean, I, I didn't know which way was up. Outside, you, you start rethinking everything. I mean, just your everything just starts, you know, where am I? Bible, 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 Bible. The more I'm in the Bible, the more I'm praising the Lord, the more I'm in church, the more time in prayer, the more in the Bible. Just it amazes me how that life and peace comes. Look, the more I hang around negative people, the more negative I get. The more I neg- hang around complainers, the more, neg- the more I complain. The more I hang around the Bible, the more life and peace. That's contentment. That's what it is. That's, that's where contentment comes from. Now, our beloved sister, Bonnie Hayden, uh, who uh, was married to Brother Eugene, who is now with the Lord, our wonderful evangelist that uh, was such a part of our church, now, Bonnie Hayden lives in the Deep South, and if you ever call her on the phone, which I'm sure she'd be happy to talk with you, she answers the phone the same way, hey, Brother Tim, hey, Brother Tim, and then when we go, y'all, be good now, y'all, have a good time, and now you'd say, well, that doesn't sound strange, I mean, she's from the Deep South, I mean, she is, she, you can't get hardly deeper south than Hattiesburg, Mississippi, but the funny thing about Bonnie Hayden is, She's a Yankee. She was born in Indiana. She was raised in the North. Can you imagine from someone from New York calling up an operator in New York and then saying, hey, y'all have a good day now. Uh, folks, if you called someone from New York and did that, you'd say, they're making fun. But you call someone from Mississippi, you, that's, that's just the way it, sometimes you even think they're sounding kind of like, are you making fun? No, that's just, uh, folks, that's the way they talk. Now, point, my, here's my point. She spent 20, 25, 30 years down there in South Mississippi. You can't live in South Mississippi without talking like that. It's impossible. 
And the fact is, when you hang around the Bible, you're going to talk like the Bible. It's just going to start coming out of you. There is a third thing that I believe true contentment is. It is believing your God is for you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, what should we say then to the stuff that happens in our life? What should we say to the things of life? (laughs) Here's what I say. If God be for us, who can be against us? The apostle could not even express, he could not even, he could not even fathom the joy that he was feeling just by knowing that my God, Father God has my back. I got your back. And that's what the Holy Spirit had confirmed to him, that God has your back. I think everybody here has been bullied. I don't think there's a person in this room who hasn't been bullied by somebody. You might have been bullied by your brother. My brother bullied me all the time. He's 11 years old than I am, always bigger, always stronger. He'd get me on the ground. He'd put, uh, he'd put it, he'd crouch over me and get his hands on my shoulders. I could not move. I was just staring at him. And then he'd, uh, he'd drop loogies on me. And uh, he'd drop that spit down. He'd see how far he could drop it down. Then he'd suck it back up. He'd let that thing go down about two inches. Pick it back up. Oh, you're going to kill me. Boy, I wanted to kill my brother. And, uh, man, there's nothing like a warm loogie dropping right in your face there. <laughs> my brother bullied me. But you know what? When my friends bullied me, my brother, he's not a big guy, but just when your little friends are all this big and your brother's this big, even if he's not big, he certainly was my brother. He'd come to my aid. Well, guess what? God is for you. He is your, he's got your back. He, he's not going to let anybody bully you. And the good thing about God is he's not going to drop a loogie on you. And uh, <laughs> hallelujah, that's, that's something good right there. Author Jeremiah Burroughs says this about contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet inward quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You'll have to listen to the podcast to get that. Number four, true contentment is trusting that your relationship with God will never fail. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities, powers, all those demons, all those dark things. People say, I'm demonized by some sin. Well, who isn't? Who isn't? Good night. You can win that thing. Don't tell me you can't beat it. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers or things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You'd say, well, okay, God, or pastor, I, I, I get it. I, I'm with you. But here's a question I have. What if God gets tired of me? And what if he says, you know what? You just, you make me sick. I'm just tired of you. It won't happen. What if God gets overwhelmed and too busy and forgets me? It won't happen. What if someone else comes along and steals his affection and he has none for me? It is not going to happen. And that's what Paul is saying here. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I don't even pretend to know the heartache that some of you have been through. The disloyalty from a mate, watching someone just 
go out and cheat. I cannot even imagine. I cannot even imagine the heartache of a father who did things to you or a mother. I cannot even imagine some person who's hurt you so bad. I cannot even imagine. And my heart breaks. And I think all of our spirits do. And yet the Bible says there's one thing about God. (laughs) Nothing separates you from his love. Nothing. 100% love, 100% of the time, God always loves me. I looked up into his face and I've seen his love. I've looked into his letter and I read his love. I hear him and he speaks to me. Love, I love you. There will never be a day when you'll hear anything but love from God. Oh, he may grieve over my sin. He may be disappointed in my actions, but his love is forever. That's the greatest thing about trusting God as your Lord and Savior. You have forever your loved. Loved. I close with this story. A legend, actually, a Japanese legend. It is the legend of the stonecutter named Hansu. While covering a stone one day, he grew so tired of just chipping away at the stone day after day. In weariness, he began to wish for an easier work and more money for sure. Seeing the emperor ride by on a horse, he thought, that's what I would like to be. At once, his wish was granted. And so he was riding on a royal horse. But he became miserable from the sun beating down on his head and his neck. And he realized that the sun was stronger than the king. And so he wished that he was the sun. And a wish was granted. And as he shone down on the world, feeling as though he was the greatest of all, a cloud formed. And in a short amount of time, it burst and it spread itself over land and mountain, running down creeks and rivers and moving everything in its path. He realized that the cloud was really stronger than the sun because it could block the sun. And the, he wished that he was the rain. But then there was one thing in the path of the rain, one huge stone. And strangely enough, the stone was mightier than the water. And so he thought, well, that's what I want to be then. If a water can't move that stone out of the way, then I want to be the stone. And then there came a man with a hammer and a chisel, and he began to hack on the stone, and he broke the stone. (laughs) He found out the stone cutter was actually mightier than the stone. And only then did Hansu realize, you know what? I might as well just be a stone cutter. You know, contentment really just happens when we realize wherever I am, that godly place I am is where I'm supposed to be. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.